was rescued from a wolf wolf trap two days ago. But it will now spend the rest of its life in a zoo. There are only believed to be around a 1,000 Persian leopards left still in captivity. And that's all the news from RTHK. Good morning and Happy New Year. Welcome to the Week on 3, the very first one on the very first day of 2022 with me, Noreen Mayer. In the next half an hour, let me take you through some of the highlights of some of our programs on Radio 3. Don't forget, we're also running our annual charity campaign, Operation Santa Claus, until the end of the month. And this year, we're supporting 18 worthy causes, from the elderly to ethnic minority children to children in need and also the those with physical and intellectual disabilities. We hope you can donate and also check out our new website, oschk.org, and check out all the activities and ways you can support OSC 2021. This week on 3, we explored topics from learning Chinese as a second language in schools to non-fungible tokens, also known as NFTs. And we even had Keanu Reeves and Carrie-Anne Moss from The Matrix hanging out with Alison Howe in the common room. You know what? Let's start with just that. This week on Ali's Common Room, she spoke to Matrix stars Keanu Reeves and also Carrie-Anne Moss about their latest movie, The Matrix Resurrections. Take it away, Ali Howe. I know that you guys have been working really hard on this, but do you remember the moment after you finished reading this particular script? What was that feeling like? Ooh, um, that it was that it was wonderful. That it was um, the humor, the action, the ideas. That it was very satisfying as a a Matrix film, and also exciting in how it was different and you know just a kind of evolution of a matrix film and for carrie ann yeah i think i was i needed time to process um everything and to kind of digest all the ideas i mean i i was just blown away i was laughing i was moved i i felt so many things but i needed a little time to digest the story and what we were saying um it, 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 like my mind was just like shifting right around. <laughs> I can't wait to, to just show everybody the incredible new Matrix, but also throughout the year, what an amazing ride it has been for over 20 years. I mean, Carrie Ann, for example, how many people have come up to you over the years say, dodge this? Uh, a, f- a couple. No, not too many, but a couple. <laughs> and for Keanu, I mean, it's such an iconic role. Was there any particular scene that you still thought that, I can't believe I did that? Oh, uh, I can't believe I did that. I don't know if it was what I did or didn't do, but to be a part of it, you know, to be a part of um, the sequence where waking up in the pod and in, in Matrix or, you know, the lobby scene that we had. Um, yeah, there's just so many moments where I was like, wow, I can't believe I get to do this. Amazing. If you could give Hong Kong one reason to watch Matrix Resurrection, what would it be? One reason to watch Matrix Resurrections. 
Because it's a really darn good, awesome, fantastic, mind-expanding, enjoyable, funny, exciting, thrilling film. Awesome. Best reason ever. <laughs> Finally, you have a message for your Hong Kong fans. Yeah. Hello, Hong Kong. I hope you're well. Hope you're doing okay. And um, if you see Matrix Resurrections, I hope you like it. Yeah, yeah. Hi, uh, Hong Kong fans. I really, I hope you love our new movie, Matrix Resurrections. Hope you love it. Amazing. I know they have been so busy doing junkies, and I know that this is the last hour. So thank you for looping Hong Kong in for this. Have a great 2022. And that was Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss talking about their latest movie, The Matrix Resurrections, on Alison Howe's Common Room. You can catch The Common Room from Monday to Fridays from 9 to 10 p.m. Now let's move on to NFTs, also known as non-fungible tokens, which is the latest trading technology that has exploded in popularity in 2021. On Thursday's Backchat, hosts Janice Wong and Jenny Lam talk to Ronald Yu, who's a lecturer on fintech at the Engineering School at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, along with Enid Chui, the arts editor at the South China Morning Post, along with Jesse Ko, who's the general manager at Blockchain Solutions. Here, Janice starts by clarifying what constitutes as an NFT. I can sell anything digital as an NFT. So, so for example, um, can I sell a photo of myself on my social media account as an NFT? Yes, you, you may. Actually, um, I, I currently teach a, a class in uh, Hong Kong Productivity Council. And uh, during the class, I, as an example, I usually mint my uh, daughter's artwork and uh, put it in an NFT. Now, whether anyone would buy that, that's another question. But you can actually mint it, you know, a, you commit anything that is digital file. But I, I can actually use the same picture picture as my uh, profile picture again, and uh, anybody in the world can look at it and download it if they want. Sure. Yes. Uh, actually, uh, if you know, I can I can point an example. You know, the Mona Lisa in in, in Paris, right? It, it's viewed by millions and, and shared by millions, right? But that art piece by itself, it's still worth probably you know millions or you know hundred millions of, of US dollars, right? So it's it's the 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 fact that the uh, the file can be shared, um, it, it's okay. So sorry, let me take a step back and and use. If you remember, recall uh, back in you know nineties and two thousands, uh, uh, we usually buy used to buy CDs, right? Uh, CDs cost a lot, right? Well, for 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 digital song, but when MP3s came around, you know you can share a file within seconds. Obviously, that's you know against digital rights everything, but it still happened because you can make a copy within. You can make a million copies within a second, right? Now, what people are saying, and, and I, I do agree with this, is that NFTs as a protocol actually gives value, puts value back into digital files. Because you can finally identify, ah, this is the one and only copy and makes it unique. So that is the metaphor of you know, NFT putting value back into anything digital. But how is it one of a kind? Like, for example, when I was talking about my profile picture that everybody, sure. that anybody around the world sure. can uh, download uh, and save, how is that one of a kind when, when uh, everybody or many people can right. have a copy of it? Right. A copy of it doesn't mean the real copy, right? So you can make a million copy of the Mona Lisa, but you, the only one single real one, it's still in Paris, right? So I think the, the idea is you are essentially the artist or, or, or the, the person who's, who's minting NFT, who, who assuming to have the original artwork. They're actually telling the world, ah, I have made this, and this is the one and only uh, copy, 
and that makes that copy unique. And I have the rights to this copy. So that's, that's why it, we're putting, you know, that's called putting value back into digital files. Okay, so I have an NFT of the Mona Lisa and not the real thing, and now it's worth a million dollars, and I want to cash it in to buy a house. How do I do that? Well, uh, assuming you have the rights, <laughs> you have the correct. Can, can you do that? Um, I get, you can mint anything, but it's uh, whether, whether, okay, so let's assume that you, you have the rights to mint an NFT of the Mona Lisa. Um, and then you you just go sell online. Um, actually, right now there are very major major uh, online platforms. Um, you know, I, I can name them. Some of them are open it's called OpenSea or or Variable. You know, they're, they're super rare. There, there are many of them. But it it's traded every single day. NFTs are traded every single day, every single minute, every single second. Yeah, but but my question is now yeah. I want to cash it in and sure. I want to buy a house in Kowloon Tong. That's a million dollars. How do I do that? <laughs> sure. Um, actually, then, uh, once you sell NFT, it's usually in a form right now, uh, usually in uh, traded in cryptocurrencies, usually in Ethereum. Well, because the whole thing started with in, on the Ethereum chain. Um, and once you get Ethereum, it's actually um, it's valuable. You can you can sell it, um, you can convert it into something else, or you can convert it into what we call fiat cash, and then you can buy it. So I can go to a state agent and say, "Hey, I have this one million dollars NFT. Can you do that?" Um, I think some aspire or, or, or enterprising uh, agent would do that because uh, it's it's you know it's like Bitcoin, right? It's like oh, I, I give you ten Bitcoins, you know, like how much house can I buy? Right? Okay, so it's basically a virtual investment tool, yeah. Um, it can be investment, uh, but right now um, it, it, it's. I think the industry would say it's more of a bragging rights to own an NFT than to invest. <laughs> be, well, unless obviously you're you're investing in you know the really really expensive ones. Yeah. All right, and Jenny, I'm not sure you can get a house with a million dollars right now in Kowloon Probably not. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Right. Not yeah. even a car park. No. <laughs> yes. All right. Now, now let's bring in Enid. I, I know NFTs have been uh, having a big impact in the art world. How big of an impact has it been having? I mean, can you tell us a bit well, about that? Well, I mean, it's such a fascinating um, area, and um, it, that, um, and, and it's really complicated. Um, that's why early in the year I decided that rather than just report on it and write about it, um, uh, I wanted to sort of get my hands dirty and, and do it. So um, 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 uh, with the help of my more techie colleagues, we launched an NFT charity auction to raise money for Operation Santa Claus. And, um, and it's been a real education and to address some of the points that you were discussing earlier with Jesse, um, there is a difference, I think, between um, NFTs that are pegged to a purely digital creation and NFTs that are attached to a physical object. So a Mona Lisa, if you mint an NFT of this painting in the Louvre, then um, there is a question about who actually owns the painting. Is it the Louvre Museum or the person who owns the NFT of it? Um, it's not a very neat um, uh, um, proposal, but if it's a digital, if it's a piece of digital art that's actually minted into the NFT, then whoever owns the NFT of that piece of art um, also owns the digital file itself that constitutes the artwork. And, um, and that is very useful to artists 
who mainly creates um, works that are digital um, and, or, or even um, videos. Um, so, for example, one of the artists who participated in our um, auction is Frog King. And um, he is probably best known as one of, if not the um, earliest um, artists to make performance art in mainland China. So in the late 70s, he was doing performances on the Great Wall of China in Tiananmen Square and so on. And those performances were recorded in old-fashioned videos. Yeah. Um, but he hasn't really been able to sell any of that footage because it's difficult to sell. It's not a painting. It's not a piece of sculpture. Right? But with NFT, um, which is um, basically a digital certificate of authenticity, then you can say, I'm selling this footage and this is um, an attachment. That means that you can sell it on um, without any question to um, the ownership of it. Okay. Okay, let's bring in Ronald Yu. Um, you're a lecturer on fintech at, at COHK. Um, are NFT hackable? Can you hack them? NFTs can be. Um, theoretically, you can hack them. Um, in fact, the smart contract aspects of NFTs have been hacked. Uh, when Beeple sold the, uh, the, the $69 million Beeple uh, NFT was sold a few days later, um, somebody called Monsieur Pesson uh, made a copy of it. And what he had done was actually he hacked the uh, smart contract that was attached to that NFT and uh, made a copy of the NFT. So that, that certificate of authenticity um, then is, is of zero value then? Um, if theor it's hacked. Theoretically, you have a, well, he, had, he made a second copy. So theoretically, you have now two copies of the certificate of authenticity. Okay, so how does that devalue the 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 um, the series of codes essentially? Well, essentially, uh, the the piece of art. I still think um, the buyer could still sell it for some piece of money. Um, as far as the devaluation is concerned, that is yet to be seen how um, all this will happen um, because after the um, because you also had other artists who have put up uh, NF copies of NFTs on um, something called the NFT Bay. And he was an Australian artist, uh, come developer, and uh, he he put all of these up on a uh, seventeen terabyte file. So if you want to download a bunch of NFTs, you could. And his point was that. Um, when you buy the NFT, you're actually buying uh, – you're not buying the ownership that you might think you're getting. So he, he put this out there. And um, has this affected the price of those NFTs? I'm not frankly sure. Um, but I, I suspect uh, it's made a lot of people very aware of the fact um, that you know the uniqueness and the value is something they have to think through very, very carefully. And that was Ronald Yu, lecturer on fintech at the Engineering School at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, along with Enid Choi, the arts editor at the South China Morning Post, and Jesse Ko, who's the general manager at Blockchain Solutions. And they were chatting on Thursday's Backchat. And as ever, if you like what you're hearing, then please go back to our RTHK Radio 3 archive and listen back to the programs. Now, let's learn more about the plight that non-Chinese-speaking students here in Hong Kong face. 
Our Radio 3 intern, Abe Venkatiraman, talked to Maggie Holmes, who's the co-founder of NGO Chinese as an Additional Language Hong Kong, and also parent Said Aga. In this excerpt, Maggie Holmes pinpoints a few issues to help us better understand the challenges faced by non-Chinese speaking students and their families. I think for a start, it's not necessarily very helpful to imagine that all ethnic minorities are somehow the same. So there's a huge difference, for example, between the needs and the learning outcomes of students from ethnic minority families who go to a Chinese medium of instruction kindergarten and then continue through the Chinese medium of instruction local school system. Mm-hmm. I mean, often these children come out speaking really great, really fluent Cantonese, but unfortunately they may sort of fail pretty much everything because they haven't had enough support in reading and writing, which can affect their learning outcomes for everything, really, for maths, for you know science, everything. On the other hand, perhaps at the other extreme, we have children who've gone through the English medium of instruction local school system. Now, they may only have a few hours, really, of Chinese a week. They may not have very much contact with local Chinese people. And they're sort of taught Chinese, they're taught standard written Chinese in Cantonese. So very often, they really can't speak Cantonese, even simple Cantonese, very well at all. So, you know, these are two very different categories of learner profiles. And and yet, of course, there are, if you did a Venn, Venn diagram of the two groups, there are some commonalities between the two. But, you know, we have to be really careful about just lumping all ethnic minorities together and saying that, oh, somehow they're all the same. And yet, I suppose the, the one thing that unites them all is a lack of appropriate support, a lack of suitable teaching materials. Could you just elaborate a bit on how that dearth of support manifests? If you imagine children going through the CMI, Chinese Medium of Instruction School System, I don't think they get any support, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, OK, they might have 45 minutes after school where they go over, over the same things over and over again. But, you know, they need a huge amount of support with vocabulary. And generally, they don't have any, really. I mean, so it would be just so helpful, I think, if somebody could give them some targeted th- support with their textbooks. I mean, the local school system is extremely textbook-driven. Having discussed the fact that NCS students are plagued by a lack of support and resources, I asked Maggie Holmes whether the government was doing anything to improve the situation. So I think EDB has done some fabulous work, really, in the last few years in recognising that we have an issue and providing a lot of funding to to deal with it. So, I mean, schools can get somewhere between 50,000 Hong Kong dollars up to 1.5 million a year, depending on how many students they've got and depending whether they're kindergarten or, you know, primary or whatever. So they're putting a lot of money into it. But how's that money going to be used? You know, that's where the problem lies, that schools can simply use the money to get another teacher. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we know that sometimes those teachers are just used for other things. But also, what are the teachers going to do with their time? What resources do they have? What training do they have? Money is great on the one hand, but we really need standardised resources 
and help. Now, there is the learning framework and some resources have been made in conjunction with that, but I haven't taken a good enough look at them to know how effective they are and I don't think that anybody has ever properly assessed them and assessed the learning outcomes in the schools that have been using them. So vis-a-vis these resources, have things been getting better over the past few years or has there been a sort of stagnation? A few years ago, we did some research into the resources that were available to kindergartens here and there weren't really any resources available. And even with the funding that the kindergartens had, they didn't know how to purchase those resources. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward three or four years and the situation is still the same, that a few charities have got resources in the pipeline, but these resources are still only available to kindergartens that are participating in their projects. And... I think we really need to quickly get some basic resources into the kindergartens, particularly for the reading and for the writing, really, particularly for the writing. It's actually not that difficult to teach, to support young children learning Chinese writing. It's just a matter of copying. Mm-hmm. So it shouldn't be that difficult. Let's get something out into all the kindergartens quickly. Then we can adapt if necessary. I think speed is of the essence here. Every year we have around 4,000 children from non-Chinese speaking families joining local kindergartens and there's still no resources to support them. Not only is state support inadequate when it comes to Chinese language education, but government assistance is unavailable in another crucial area, the tackling of racial discrimination. Syed Aga recounts the racist and degrading treatment that he and his son Omar faced at his local school, and how government agencies did little to nothing to address it. It started with with my daughter. She is uh, 12 year old. We really wanted our kids to learn Chinese because they are growing up here. They, they see their life in Hong Kong. So we put her in a Chinese uh, stream. She continued with her education, completed her kindergarten. And then it was time for my son to go to the same kindergarten. They, they have three-year age difference, roughly. The very same kindergarten uh, refused to give admission to my son because now they had a requirement that the child should speak Chinese and the interview would be in Chinese. I forced them that no, because the teachers, everyone know my daughter and she, she did very well in Chinese. But they said, now we have changed uh, the system. If your child doesn't speak Chinese, you can't apply here. You should apply somewhere else. And then I actually had to argue with them that, no, I I am going to apply and you have to accept my application, which they did. Um, But uh, during the time of interview, they started asking questions in Chinese and he had no idea about Chinese. He didn't speak any Chinese at all. He was just a young kid. And it was sort of... uh, you can say group interview where there were other parents, other kids, I think four or five other parents, four or five other kids. So other kids immediately started reacting to the instructions they received, but Omar was confused. He he didn't understand what the teacher was asking. I requested the teacher to give him some hints about what you want him to do uh, in, in English and during the interview, right there in front of all the teachers, uh, all the parents, students, they started shouting at me that we already told you not to apply here if you don't speak Chinese. You still didn't listen to us. You applied. So now we can't do anything. And it was very 
bad experience if you say it that way and that was parent said aga chatting with abe venkataraman and earlier we heard maggie holmes the co-founder of ngo chinese as an additional language hong kong you can also listen back to the entire feature on friday's 123 show And now let me leave you with some good old fashioned music entertainment. Steve James on Thursday's afternoon drive. Happy New Year to you and I'll be back next Saturday with you on the week on 3. Have a great weekend. I move pretty fast. Steve James. So try to keep up. Do you really think that'll work? Well, I guess we'll see. Radio 3. That kind of frank dialogue troubles me. Oh, the factories may be roaring with the boom like a zoom like a wee but there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four everything stops for tea now i know just why franz schubert oh yes didn't finish his unfinished symphony oh, why was that he might have written more but the clock struck four oh. everything stops for tea tea break this afternoon celebrating the birthday of the english songwriter singer record producer mr jeff lynn born this day 1947 Uh, he was a member of the Idol Race, the Move, of course the uh, the Electric Light Orchestra, the Traveling Wilburys. As a producer, he's worked with everybody. He's worked with uh, George Harrison, uh, Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, Paul McCartney, Brian Wilson, Joe Walsh, many many others. Here is a song celebrating Jeff Lynne's birthday from one of my favorite bands that he was involved in, one of the earliest, uh, the 1960s band, the Idol Race, and I like my toys. I have a train set and a garage full of cars and a soldier with a gun. My mother says I should have more responsibility.
Sai, ci scrivi.